Yes, he got trapped in a coal mine, digging in the dark black pearl. Jesse got trapped in a coal mine, never did marry his girl. There ain't nowhere and there ain't no light and there ain't no way to make it out alive. His wedding was planned for the 5th of July. Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. Jesse got trapped in the coal mine. That's good night, Texas, kicking things off for us. On the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our longtime presenting sponsors. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here today as we are ready to rock and roll. You know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up bold Stanley Thermos. Yep, yep, that one that's got mud caked on it from five duck seasons ago. And uh, hey, maybe you spike it with the grandpappy's cough syrup. Maybe you don't. Whatever floats your boat, I'm just glad you're here because we've got a lot to get into concerning the great outdoors. And so off the top, we will get into a little red snapper discussion. Uh, As far as topics that we've covered over the years, I don't think there's a single regulatory issue that we've had to discuss more frequently than the gross misuse of our red snapper fishery when it comes to recreational anglers and uh, you know we as recreational anglers have been raked over the coals for about five six seven years now our seasons keep getting shorter and this isn't just specific to texas it's across much of the gulf coast Uh, but here's the deal red snapper don't migrate so why the hell are the fish off the coast of texas being managed as one population with fish, say, off the coast of Florida. doesn't make a lick of sense. And so uh, we will be joined by Texas Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries Director Robin Rikers because there's hope, my friends. There is hope that we're going to get some stuff changed for the betterment of all recreational anglers out there. Uh, So that's coming up with Robin. Then (laughs) we will spend a couple segments talking turkey with one of the most truly inspirational figures in the outdoor space, uh, our friend Josh Carney, a.k.a. Son of the South, he'll be here. See, Josh, at the age of 13, was in a hunting accident. He was actually shot by his father while turkey hunting, and it left him paralyzed from the waist down. Now, one would think that if you were paralyzed while turkey hunting, uh, you probably wouldn't want to go turkey hunting anymore. Couldn't be farther from the truth for Josh, and that same accident permanently altered his vocal cords, leaving him with this incredible ability to use his mouth to communicate with animals. Not just turkeys, but a variety of species. However, today we will focus on turkeys and Josh will do some calling demos for us and we'll discuss strategy as far as sweet-talking that big gobbler within shotgun range. Uh, After that, we will switch gears and do a little sight fishing for big spawning largemouth with FLW angler John Hunter. He is also the co-founder of Go Wild app. And so we're excited to have John shed some light on what to do when that big girl that's on her bed just won't bite anything. Uh, How do you get hooked up? What do you do to make her mad enough to finally strike your bait? Um, We'll get into that. Also a couple post-spawn patterns. And then we'll discuss the latest and greatest from Go Wild app. So it's going to be a great show. 
We'll be all over the road, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. I'm certainly looking forward to it, and I'm glad that y'all are here. A couple other things to mention are April Photo of the Month contest is going on right now. And we've got a great prize to offer up for this month. It's the Mossberg 930 Hunting All-Purpose Field 12-Gauge. And this thing is bad to the bone. It's in Mossy Oak, new bottomland camo, 26-inch barrel, uh, vented rib. Anyway, it's uh, all around a kick-butt shotgun, especially for the duck hunters and turkey hunters out there. Uh, so all you need to do is send in your best hunting or fishing photo. You can email it to Lone Star Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it to our Facebook page or use that LSOS photo contest hashtag on Instagram. I'll see it. I'll get you entered. And then our monthly winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for our grand prize contest. And uh, that winner will join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So get those photos in. Um, also, let's do a quick giveaway. If you haven't seen Lone Star Beer rebranded the Lone Star Light, uh, Lone Star Texas Light. And so on that note, I've got some Lone Star Beer swag to give away today. And we'll send out a, a, a camo cap, a Lone Star Outdoor Show sticker, and shoot, I'll even throw in a Dallas Safari Club t-shirt. So all you need to do is email Lone Star, that's Lone Star, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Couldn't be any easier. Everyone that emails is entered to win, and we'll draw a winner and announce them on the air next week. Also, the winner of last week's Costa Sunglasses giveaway, Terry Glenn from Jacksboro, Texas. Congratulations, brother. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot to get into, and, uh, and we'll be right back with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Robin Rikers. We're talking Red Snapper right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But when it comes to services, I really don't care. Just bring them to me two at a time. I drink country cool, just like that morning dew. Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, threecurl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffpair for Hoffpair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffpair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Hey guys, Cable here for Chama Chairs. It's the all-terrain swivel chair that was designed from the ground up and engineered for unmatched in-the-field performance. 
offering 360-degree dead-quiet swiveling. They've got tougher-than-nails tear-resistant fabric, unique telescoping leg design with pivoting duck feet, also premium travel bag with accessory pockets. Yes, Chama Chairs is changing the game, making all other hunting chairs obsolete. And you can find them at ChamaChairs.com. This is David Faraday, and thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Tonight we're fishing off the jetty, counting stars until the dawn. Grab that fishing pole tighter, son. I think you got a big one on. That's the Lone Star Outdoor Show Zone. The great Gary P. Nunn bringing us back. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you guys and gals for being here. Thanks to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club as well. As uh, we're all set to head offshore and get into a topic that over the years, and I don't know if we've spent more time on any other specific regulatory issue than federal red snapper. And for good reason, because the feds have been sticking it to recreational anglers for, gosh dang, uh, what we've been doing the show nine years, and <laughs> it's been essentially that entire time frame. Um, and and every summer we see it get worse with shortened red snapper seasons. Last summer, a three day season. Are you kidding me? What a load of crap for recreational anglers. The Gulf Coast states should be in control of their snapper, even if it's outside of nine nautical miles. Because let's face it, these fish don't migrate. Uh, so. Joining us here momentarily is our Coastal Fisheries Director from Texas Parks and Wildlife, Robin Rikers. But first, this segment is brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging. Check out the new Pulsar Trail. It's what I've got mounted on my AR. Oh my gosh, did I say AR? Yes, I have quite a few ARs and I'm proud of it. Anyway, I've got the Pulsar Trail mounted on mine. And it's a game changer when it comes to hunting hogs or varmints under the cover of darkness. It's the Pulsar Trail, and you'll save 20% off if you use my promo code LONESTAR. That's LONESTAR when you check out at PulsarNV.com. All right, uh, without further ado, let's bring on our first guest. He's a longtime friend of the show and our Texas Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries Director, Robin Rikers. Thanks for being here. Well, glad to be back and, and certainly look forward to the visit today. Yes, sir. Hope you guys had a great Easter. We certainly did. You know, how can you not enjoy that spring-like weather we've been having? <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. There's no doubt. Now, I know you've been swamped of late regarding a topic we've discussed in detail over the years, and it finally looks like there might be some some hope for the recreational angler um, here off the uh, coast of Texas. And, you know, one thing we've discussed frequently is that our snapper fishery is thriving how does coastal fisheries quantify that assessment? Yeah, we we continue to do survey work that basically deals with young of the year, and we also share data on on vertical lines that we will collect samples off of reefs and reef areas that where we've put artificial reefs and and the like. We share data with universities uh, who also do some of that sampling. Uh, for us, and, and even National Marine Fishery Service does some long lines that um, throughout the Gulf, um, you know, basically helps each state to understand what they have. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line to all that is what we do know is we, we have about 40, 42% of the biomass off of Texas. 
uh, as compared to, uh, you know, across the Gulf. And so, yeah, our fishery is still thriving and, and the biomass continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's how you guys quantify it with science. I quantify it by going out there and every year catching more and bigger snapper. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and certainly we've seen that in recreational catches as well, as you as you just mentioned. Um, you know, since since the time when this rebuilding has started on red snapper, fish size has doubled across the Gulf. So, um, no, fish sizes continue to go up, and as you say, people limit out very quickly. Uh, and we see that in our recreational catches as well. Mm-hmm. Well, when we have things like, you know, just for example, a ridiculous seven-day federal season, you know, elements like wind can pretty much eliminate many boats from going out altogether during that season, which is which is unfortunate. I know that you guys are, are working hard to combat that issue. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you, though, is, you know, when when you're out there fishing for amberjack or grouper or, or other uh, fish that hang out at reefs and areas that, you know, red snapper call home, when you pull up a red snapper because you're obviously going to catch them, but you pull up a snapper from 150 feet and their swim bladders inflate, you could see it popping out of their mouth. Do most recreational anglers have the ability to save those fish or do they just throw them back and those fish typically die? Uh, you know, we don't have a, a real good handle on the number of people who are trying to put those fish back or to, you know, uh, either put, uh, you know, deal with the air bladder or use a descending device. But we certainly are trying to promote that more and more because if, if we can keep those fish alive, then that means that's just, you know, a, a fish there for tomorrow and a fish for that angler next week or, or next year. And so, um, you know, that's one of our efforts moving forward. And, and really all the five Gulf states are taking on those those efforts to try to create a more knowledgeable angling base to put those fish back if the, if we can. And how, how can you save that fish? Well, there's there's a puncturing the air bladder approach, and there's there's a lot of different devices out there, both that are for sale as well as people make their own. Uh, there's what we call descending devices, which basically allows the the fish to be lowered back to a depth and then released, and it it allows that lowering at a rate of speed that basically helps with that mortality as well. Uh, so there's there's several different devices on the market that that can help, and we just encourage anglers to pick one they like and and, and use it. Right. Well, and I encourage them to be careful because I don't know if you've ever gotten your finger stuck in a red snapper's mouth, but uh, I think I had on like some kind of low grade metal gloves, and I just forgot. You know, I was like treating it like a large mouth, and all of a sudden that snapper closed his mouth, and I, it went through all my fingernails. You know, damn near all the way through my finger. Yeah, that uh, served as a reminder. They're called snapper for a reason. Reason. <laughs> well, and 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 you you bring up an excellent point. No matter which device you're using, safety first. Yeah. <laughs> what have you guys been up to as far as taking control of this fishery? Like you said, we have 42 percent of the of the Gulf's biomass of red snapper. Yet we're under the same federal restrictions as the other states. I know you guys have been very busy. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing. Yeah, uh, on the heels of last year's season, which was, of course, three days, but then NOAA stepped in and helped the states uh, basically get an additional 39 days, um, weekend-only kind of season that that helped really show people again what this fishery can be. And when I say fishery in this case, you know, what tourism can, can be driven off of this, who can get out there and go fishing if you really have a fishery open. So they recognize that need, and right now they're working with the five Gulf states in in uh, an attempt to develop what they call exempted fishing permits for each state. Mm-hmm. And basically that's hopefully giving the states 
it's a precursor to giving the states more management authority. And so uh, we're looking at that as a real optimistic uh, approach. We hope that it you know, they go through these these exempted fishing permits and, and really allow each state to then start to think about managing a fishery in a way that, you know, basically deals with those different aspects that, that each state needs. You know, some states need that, that tourism boost in June. Some of them need it in the fall. Some of them need it in the spring. Um, and each state's different in that respect. And so we, we're, we're pretty excited about this opportunity to maybe get a little more state control over management. Mm-hmm. And, and as we've discussed previously, you know, these snapper don't migrate, um, it, you know, by and large. They might migrate one, from one reef to the next, but they're not going from Texas to Florida and vice versa. That's absolutely true. You know, I think uh, the average movement over here in the western Gulf is about 11 kilometers. So, you know, they just really don't move a whole lot uh, once they once they get on a reef and assuming that that conditions there stay good, they're, they're going to stay right there. Right. What has to happen now to see that see this movement uh, progress to where you know it's passed into regulation? Yeah. At this point, it's basically in the hands of National Marine Fisheries Service, and the public comment period uh, will be closing or closed on April third, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm sorry, midnight of April second, actually. Um, and so National Marine Fisheries Service will basically make a determination as to either they give the exempted fishing permits or they do not. If they give them, uh, they're set up to be for two years, and so that would put the state of Texas in control for the next two years. Um, to get that control, we've agreed to try to manage our fishery within a certain percentage allocation. Um, and so basically what we're doing is projecting our season length based on that percentage, um, and it stands to benefit Texas uh, quite a bit if if we would get that because, of course, I, as we've talked in the past, we're subsidizing days of fishing when we're grouped into the whole group as, as a whole across the Gulf, and this would actually allow us to get more days of fishing off of Texas, and as you suggest, our biomass should support that. Absolutely. Okay, and, and say that this doesn't get passed, what has Texas, has coastal fisheries ever thought of suing the feds or anything of that nature? Coastal fisheries hasn't had those thoughts. Certainly, um, there's you know there's a lot of debate over the data and the model and and that sort of stuff. And we're going to continue to work in the system to do that. Though you know certainly, as much litigation that surrounds this fishery, um, uh, certainly there's always a chance that that the state of Texas would would uh, uh, look to do something different. Um, part of it is just we're just seeking some better management here, and and really we think it needs to be in state control. Um, as far as this, this season, if it doesn't take place, what we think will happen is it'll revert back to, um, really something akin to what we saw last year, which was a three day, three day kind of opening and closing, which as you just, as you suggested when we got on, you know, if the wind blows for two days, you're, you're sunk. Yeah. But we do intend to keep our state water fishery open. Now, under this agreement, we we would have to monitor that and try to keep it open within that those allotted pounds. But um, you know, our goal is to keep that fishing opportunity out there for as many people as we can with that state water season. Well, you know, you guys seem to always have the uh, the recreational angler interest at heart. Uh, one thing I've taken away from our conversations over the years, and and uh, we certainly appreciate that. There's no doubt about it. You know, as we've talked in the past, anglers buy fishing licenses. They buy they buy tackle. 
all that comes back to the state of Texas, both in you know direct revenues from licenses as well as when you buy fishing tackle and excise taxes, and it 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 allows us to do the conservation work we do. So, you know, we 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 want to take care of both our recreational anglers, our commercial anglers, our our for hire people. Uh, basically, a strong fishery is good for all those those groups. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you go back to uh, gosh, I can't remember. It was before my time, uh, but. I think it was was it the eighties when our redfish fishery was pretty much depleted and due to commercial fishing we had to just take a step back and say, Okay, this is gonna be a recreational fishery only going forward. Yeah, certainly that discussion started in the late seventies and as you you've said, kind of probably came to a culmination in the in the mid to late eighties and and yeah, a decision was made that that fishery and that that, that those opportunity to catch that fish and because of the way they were being exploited, that they were best suited to just be a recreational fishery. And and uh, um, you know it's it's proven um, that that as you saw that the the economic impact of having that as a recreational fishery, um, you know you see that from Brownsville all the way to Port Arthur. No doubt. Well, I'll be down in Galveston here in a couple of weeks taking advantage of it. So. <laughs> well, good luck. I, you know, I think uh, the fishing been great there so far. Hopefully, it'll keep up by the time you get there. But uh, um, no, we're 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 off to a great spring all across the coast here for 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 you know certainly most of our species. People are getting out there and catching them. Well, going back to uh, red snapper, just here as we wrap things up, where can folks follow along and keep up with updates? Uh, you know, on this fishery and and the possible. Uh, permit that Texas could acquire to basically um, manage our offshore red snapper? Well, certainly as we get any new information regarding acceptance of the permit or not, we're going to start getting the word out about that through our through our various outlets, uh, press releases, social media, etc. Um, and, and in addition to us, you, you certainly can follow the Southeast Fishery Science Center, National Marine Fishery Service, or the Gulf Council website. All of those different locations will will be trying to put this news up as quickly as we get it. And certainly, as soon as we can get an announcement to a start date, um, which we expect to be June one, when we're you know if if the EFP is accepted, uh, but we're going to be trying to get that word out so people can be planning their trips. Love it. Well, we certainly appreciate it, Robin. Thanks again for all you guys do, and and thanks for making time for us today. Well, thank you again. Great to be on the show. All right, so there you have it. Maybe a light at the end of this long and arduous tunnel for recreational red snapper anglers like myself and many of you. Uh, always great visiting with Robin Rikers. That segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of. We all want it. And if you're ready to make that plunge, to take that next step and acquire your own piece of paradise, let Lone Star Ag Credit help you out. They've been doing it for over 100 years, and they've got you covered. For more info, check them out at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with the OG, that's right, the original gangster turkey caller, Josh Carney, the son of the South himself. You know, spring is in the air, and that means those lovesick gobblers are on the move looking for a lovely lady. And we'll sweet-talk them into shotgun range and smack them upside the head next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. I'm going back someday, come one man to blue by Will you sleep all day and the catfish play on blue by 
For nearly a decade, the Lone Star Outdoor Show has delivered entertaining, educational, and conservation-driven content to an ever-growing audience of sportsmen and women. Join companies like Vortex Optics, First Light Hunting, and Horizon Firearms that use the Lone Star Outdoor Show to increase their brand awareness and bottom line. If you're interested in introducing your brand to our audience, then call Gil at 972-849-3392. That's me, Gil, the Lone Star Outdoor Show marketing guy at 972-849-3392. You can also email me at gil.lonestyledoorshow at gmail.com. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. I've been a-hunting these woods since I was seven years old. This shotgun was my granddad's, now it's mine to hold. I ain't never hurt no one except a turkey each year. And come Sunday morning, I'll be bending God's ear. Guns and religion. Guns and religion. That's Austin Cunningham bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a treat to be talking outdoors with you as we're about to talk a little spring turkey hunting. In just a second, an old friend will join us. But before we do that, this segment of the presentation brought to you by Overstocks and Bargains. You see, my friend Trent Gilly. Him and his business partner are pretty much geniuses. They went around to all of the Gander Mountains when they went out of business, and they bought up all the ammunition. Now they're selling it to you and I for pennies on the dollar. So go to overstocksandbargains.com. Plus, if you use my promo code, Lone Star, that's Lone Star when you check out, you'll get 10% off, which will help with your shipping cost. You can find it at overstocksandbargains.com. Well, uh, our next guest is set to join us now, making his return to the show after a couple years, I believe. And if you're talking about a positive outlook on life and a true inspiration within the hunting community, I haven't found anyone as charismatic and full of life as our buddy Josh Carney, a.k.a. Son of the South. Thanks for being here, Josh. Hey, it's great to be back on the show. Yeah, I guess it's been a couple years, uh, but you know we've kept up with each other over social media and I, I did see something alarming, though. You you posted the other day, right in the middle of turkey season, that you're missing deer season. So I was a little confused on that. 
Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I ended up so I, I promised myself that I would never move or work during turkey season. And out of nowhere, I ended up getting a house in the heart of turkey season. So I ended up moving from Louisiana up here to, you know, right south of Tennessee line. And, um, you know, so I've been dealing with that. Going back, <laughs> You know, the birds weren't acting right. So I was like, man, you know, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to look for deer signs. So I just, I said, screw the turkey. I start look for deer trails and start putting that mineral and stuff like that. But, you know, after two days of doing that, I was like, all right, I'm ready to go back turkey hunting. So yeah. I went. We uh, we actually did get a bird um, the next morning, so I was over my deer crush for a little while, and then got back to killing turkeys. Right on. Well, and for me, it's kind of like the first thing I fell in love with was duck hunting, and uh, and in this industry, people don't, you know, our listeners care about ducks. I care about ducks, but by and large, sponsors don't care about ducks, you know. So I end up doing a lot more deer hunting and big game hunting, and every time I leave the house, I look at my lab and. Poor Belle, it's like I feel like I'm cheating on her, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, I'm the same way because I have, I, I just got a second lab. So I have my male lab, and now I have a little female lab. She's five months old, so you know I'm getting back into the routine, you know, because like I said, this industry it's all about deer hunting, but they um they really don't care about you know the, the smaller game hunting, your duck hunting, the upland game hunting. It's all about you know deer hunting and turkey hunting. It's you know it, it plays a, a small percentage in the outdoor world but it's all about you know it's all about deer mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, i'm like you i feel like i'm neglecting my pal <laughs> you know, on deer for you know four or five months out of a year yeah yeah well you know i love turkey hunting uh just as much as duck hunting and and, and i think it's because any any kind of hunting where you can talk to the animal and try to outsmart them by using vocalizations because that's a skill i mean you have to practice you have to put in the time uh, that kind of stuff appeals to me. Same thing with, with hunting elk during the rut uh, when they're bugling and, and talking. And uh, and we're going to talk a little turkey today. But for those who maybe they missed our last conversation or, or they don't follow you on, on social media yet, uh, you and turkey hunting will forever be intertwined because that's how you ultimately were paralyzed from the waist down um, in an accident years ago. And, and we don't need to go into the details uh, of that again. But, you know, in the hospital... As I recall, you know, uh, our previous conversation, that's where something magical happened. And it was a result of that accident that you have been able to do some very special things with your voice. Like, like you said, my, uh, I had a turkey hunting accident um, when I was 13 years old. So April 17th would make 13 years since my accident. Mm-hmm. Um, me and my dad went turkey hunting for the first time, and a turkey came behind a chair with my dad shot, and he shot me, um, which ended up paralyzing me. And the doctors said, uh, since I had a breathing tube in my throat for so long, I'd never be able to talk again. I pulled a breathing tube out and it altered my vocal cords. And when it did that, a few years later, I discovered that I can, um, my vocal my, my vocal cords never really matured all the way. So I could get, you know, raspy and do high pitches and, you know, do everything um, kind of like a, a younger kid could do with his vocals, you know, just to hit these notes that these animals um, do when they do their vocals on, you know, the calls that they do. Mm-hmm. So um, I went to a, a trade show, and a guy was trying to sell me a turkey call. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to buy your turkey call. I mean, I, I appreciate it, but, you know, I just don't want to buy it. And, you know, he asked me, well, what, what, you know, what kind of call do you use? I was like, well, you know, I could do that with my mouth. And I didn't know it at the time. And uh, he kind of called me out. And um, I did it, and the guy that owned the company turned around and was like, is that our call? I was like, no, that's that kid. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they kind of ran me away from the booth. <laughs> and, uh... 
after that, I um, I went to another booth and I started doing it. And I, one day, I just had the urge to post a video online on Facebook. And people were like, man, that's cool. Like, What else can you do? And they just started giving me suggestions of animals you know, to try and do, and it just became like a, a, a fun challenge at first. Uh-huh. I did a couple of videos, and someone was like, well, you need to go see the ATA show. And um, I just wanted to go as a spectator. I just wanted to see what it was all about, you know, meet the people that I looked up to in the outdoor industry. And uh, so I went. A good friend of mine, Kirsten Godfrey, we met up, and uh, we were going down the aisle, and we passed by uh, Jim Shockey. He had this big crowd of people around him. And uh, I... I <laughs> I got, you know, starstruck for a second. I screamed like a little girl. And um, she's like, do you want to meet him? I was like, yeah, but he's busy, you know? And he's busy. So she went over and she parted the crowd like Moses parting the Red Sea. <laughs> and uh, she was like, Josh, this is Jim. Jim, this is Josh. And, like, I was so scared at the moment that I didn't say hi. I just goose honked at him. I was like, huh? <laughs> Because for me, 
going into a place with my wheelchair, it's a little tougher. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll use uh, um, there's so many hunting apps out there nowadays that um, you can use, but I like to um, get to where I first locate that bird, put a pin on where I think he's at, mm-hmm. and then open my map and see where is the easiest access point for me so I don't flush him off the roost. Sure. You know, like here where I'm at now, it's a lot of hills and ridges, so the hardest thing to do is call a bird down a ridge. So I want to find out a high point where I call a bird up to me. Um, so that's where, you know, using a map and seeing, you know, the topo, seeing the land, the ridges, seeing all of the different uh, terrain comes in handy. Because, I mean, I, over the years I've been going in blind. I mean, a lot of hunters go in blind, don't know the terrain and don't know if they're hunting new land. They don't know what's on the land. Mm-hmm. I'm a big tool for me for, you know, trying to be successful in um, turkey hunting. Well, you said something interesting there, uh, which I've seen personally over the years, uh, but it just kind of reiterates it. It's a lot easier to call a bird uphill than it is downhill. Yes, I, I don't. I, personally, I don't know why, but I, I've learned that it's very hard to call a bird that well. For one, if you're at a, a lower angle, I mean, the bird he's he's got the advantage. He can see you better than you can see him. So mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he's he's got the the upper hand there. So. You know, if he's coming up a hill, I mean, I mean, you're, you know, once he gets over the top of the hill, I mean, it's, you know, it's fair game. He should be right in your lap at that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I've seen it uh, many, many times that that, that is uh, true. I wouldn't say it's like a, 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 you can't say it's the golden rule, but it's certainly a trend that uh, I would say is is uh, accurate, and uh, and it and it does. You know, you put them in your lap because especially if you're right on that right on that ridge. When you get them to the edge of it, they have no idea you're there, and it's it's lights out, yep. turkey, you know. Um, so, cool. Yeah, that was one of my next questions is, do you read the topography of the landscape to try to predict which route uh, a turkey will travel towards you? Um, because, you know, they're like a lot of animals. They'll use the the path of least resistance a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, uh, for different areas, I mean, I, I, I've learned, you know, traveling across the country doing different hunts where, you know, different areas, the, the, the birds that, Birds, the species-wise, they they work different. You know, down in Louisiana, we have a lot of a lot of swampland, so our birds they have to go through so much more compared to birds up in Tennessee. They're more a field bird type hunting. Mm-hmm. So I mean, just you know, learning the area where you're hunting um, using a map is you know, it's phenomenal in in a lot of situations. Right. Um, but like I said, you know, some birds are patternable, like you know, going up north, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, those birds. You know, they're on a pattern. I mean, you could you could look at those birds one afternoon, they're going to do the same thing the next morning, and you could figure them out. So sometimes you don't have to call to those birds. You know, you just set up a blind, they're going to come through because that, that's that, that's their, their known pattern. It's kind of like deer, you know. They, they, um, they, they're they stuck to that pattern because they're going to food source, back to the bed or back to the roost. And, you know, that's their everyday deal. Nobody's messing with them, and that's, that's what they know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes, like, being back south, you know, it's a little bit different because there's so much, um, it, it changes so much, you know, in the south from the the, the, the weather to the environment to the terrain. So our animals kind of have to move, and if they're in one location, you know, it may be a week and something else changes, and they may flood, or, you know, um, we have, you know, bad weather comes through, or something like that, and it forces our animals to move out and get to, you know, different places. So, you know, reading the map and knowing your, your hunting location it's key, you know, when it comes to, you know, turkeys or any animal. I mean, I, uh, I definitely like to rely on, I don't rely on it fully, but I like to 
get an idea of the area that I'm hunting before I just go in wide. Sure. Well, and, and so going back to the, the roost, because, you know, it's never advisable to just hunt the roost. You know, maybe if it's the last day of the season or something like that, I don't know. Personally, I don't like to blow the birds out. So yes. how close is too close? I mean, where are you comfortable saying, okay, if I if I set up here in the morning, I know the roost is over there, uh, I'm not going to blow it out if I do take a tom here? Personally, I would like to be 100 yards to 200 yards away from a roost. Okay. Um, it just it just depends on the situation. Sure. Um, if, if I'm in a wooded situation where I know that that bird cannot see me, but I know he's like right over the next hill or whatever, and I know that I have enough cover to hide me, and I can set out a decoy, and I'm close enough to get in between him and the next group of hens. So I'm I'm an easier um, easier easier choice for him. I want to say, mm-hmm. you know, because you know I'm only a hundred yards. If he pitches out, he pitches out right in front of me, you know. And I'm, I'm the, I want to be the first hand that he hears. So once he slide out, he's right there on top of me. Sure. And, you know that that makes for you know that makes for some quick hunt sometimes. You know, right at daylight hunts when they pitch down right into the decoys. Um, you know, it just depends on the terrain and where that bird's roosted to where I set up. Well, and, and I'll tell you, like, <laughs> the first morning I ever turkey hunted years and years ago, we set up uh, pretty close to this roost uh, on the James River in the Texas Hill Country. And, and I think we were probably 150 yards away. You get to hear these mm-hmm. toms just gobbling, gobbling. And I set up, uh, I think it was just a little Jake decoy in the it was basically just the the sendero there the trail and it couldn't have been 10 feet wide but sure enough as soon as that tom came down he was looking for a fight with that jake and uh, and i and at that point i thought oh i just killed this turkey in five minutes turkey hunting is the easiest thing in the world this is great yeah yeah they got spoiled there really quick but you know over the last 10, 12 years, it's been, uh, <laughs> there's been quite a few uh, humbling moments as well. Actually had one last weekend, but that's that's the beauty of it. It keeps you coming back. How many decoys do you typically use, Josh, and, and does that change throughout the season? It changes throughout the season and it changes throughout the places where I'm hunting. Um, down south, I mean, I'll use maybe two decoys. Mm-hmm. Um, my go-to decoy is a, a Jake and a hen. Um, early season, I'll use a uh, I'll just run two decoys, um, and sometimes it's just two hens because, you know, the birds, they're still there. Their bachelor group are still grouped up. So when they're grouped up, they want to come in and fight. So I'll have a and Jake, like it's mounting the hen, like he's breeding the hen. And, you know, once those toms come in and see that, then they're ready to fight. You know, they're ready to kick some butt. Yeah. Sometimes I'll even just go out and uh, just use a a, um, a half-strutter decoy to, like, the um, – um, Flex Tone makes one, mm-hmm. or um, Avian X makes a small body um, strutter decoy. You know, that, that body size, it's not intimidating for a lot of birds. So when they come in, you know, well, I could kick that bird's butt. Yeah. But they know that, you know, it's, it's a territorial thing. It's kind of like deer in a rut. You know, it's a territorial thing. If they know that they kick that bird's butt, they're going to try and run it off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen that many times with, uh, say, you've, and I do use a big strutter with uh, with an old fan that, you know, from a turkey I shot last year i always keep one fan and, and use it the next year dry it out and then because it looks a lot more realistic than those plastic ones yeah. that these decoys come with but if you have that full body tom out there with a real turkey fan in it two-year-old birds and jakes just aren't going to mess with them by and large yeah they're like you said they're going to be intimidated 
personally, I don't mind shooting a two-year-old. So oh, heck no. If he comes in acting like a man, I, I want him to come and commit to the decoy. I love seeing that fight sure. action. You know, I, I love that. You know, they, they think they're a top, they're a top dog, especially if, if that boss Tom is nowhere in the area, he's not working that day, then those two year olds come and think they run the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, last year I uh, I shot a Tom, and there was four or five Jakes in the area, and the Tom came into that full strutter. I mean, he was he was the big man on campus. As soon as I shot him, he started flopping around, and there were four Jakes just dogpiling him, just pecking at him, spurring him. I got it all on film. It was awesome to see. <laughs> That's crazy. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so let's do this. Let's take a let's take a quick break. Come back and actually okay. talk turkeys. And by that, I mean you you do you do some calling demos for us. Sound good? Sounds good. Perfect. And that segment brought to you by a couple Texas traditions: Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue and Lone Star Texas Light. It's the same great Lone Star Light that you've come to love rebranded Lone Star Texas Light. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Up next, we continue talking turkeys with the son of the South, Josh Carney, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. The firing squads gathered, the and grins, all the change in my pockets won't pay for my sins, I'm a man. Cable here, and we all know that the North Texas weather plays for keeps. That's why you should call my childhood baseball buddy, Phil, with Tech City Roofing. Tech City is a one-stop shop for your roofing needs, offering a 10-year transferable warranty. They don't require money up front or a down payment. They deal directly with your insurance company. Tech City is insured and has an A-plus rating with the BBB. Call Phil Marler at 940-600-8221 for a free inspection, or email him at phil at techcityroofing.com. That's my lifelong bud, Phil with Tech City Roofing at 940-600-8221. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. No time for coffee because the sun will be coming up soon. And we've got to get a move on before these birds start singing their tune. If you're low on cash, don't speak it. If your job is a grind, don't That's the music of my good friend Justin Bowerman. Leave it at the front gate, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. It is great to be here with you fine folks each and every weekend. Thanks for spending a little bit of your week with me. I appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, we're still talking spring turkey with our old pal, the son of the South himself, Josh Carney. And we'll get Josh to uh, 
make some turkey vocalizations using that incredible voice here in just a minute. But before we do that, this segment of the presentation brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation, to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. Check us out at biggame.org. Well, picking it back up here for a little turkey conversation, Josh, thanks for sticking around through the break, brother. It's always a pleasure. So let's uh, let's start with some cold calling. You're in an area that you know should have turkeys. You've done your your your, your Google Earth scouting, like you said. There's plenty of hunting apps out there uh, that you use to kind of predict where turkeys are going to be and and how they're going to move throughout the terrain. Uh, but say you get there in the afternoon and you've got plenty of time to hunt. What sound are you going to make just to kind of try to see if you can get a conversation going with the gobbler? In the, in the morning, I like to do, you know, a good series of yelps and some exciting yelps, you know, just because those birds are there, you know, they're going to hammer, they're, they're looking to get with those hands. And then when the afternoon comes, you know, they're, they've been with their hands, they they settle down, they're, you know, they're, they're still, um, sometimes they're still with their hands. I don't want to get too overly excited, but um, I'll do a couple, you know, a couple clucks and uh, purrs here and there. Mm-hmm. But every 15 minutes, I'll do a cluck and purr series. Every now and then I'll do a soft yelp and I'll take some leaves that are next to me and just scratch them because it sounds like mm-hmm. you're letting them know that you're there, but you're not you're not doing something that's not unusual for a turkey. It sounds crazy, but I mean that, that's their their normal afternoon routine. And if if a bird if a bird gobbles in the afternoon, it's a pretty good chance that you could kill that bird because you know he, he's broken away from everybody and he's still looking for that last hen you know before going back to the roof. So and you mentioned something interesting there. Uh, that you do a little series of of uh, purrs and and clucks every fifteen to twenty minutes because I think a lot of people just get impatient and just start hammering away on that box call or whatever it is they're using in the afternoon and and you're probably going to do more harm than good if you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, so they they transition from a you know from a high excited you know um, just like just like people. So like you know you have some people that are morning people and some people that are night owls. Well. You know, turkeys are those morning people. They wake up happy, ready to go, you know, all excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's what I like to put out there, you know, excitement in the morning. They wake up, and they just had a good night's sleep. They wake up, and the hens are excited. The gobblers are on the limb hammering because they're ready to go for the day. So, I mean, you have, to, you have to learn the birds and give them what they want to hear, what they're doing. Well, so let's hear an example of – let's start with off the roost in the morning. And then we'll we'll come back and, and get you to do the afternoon uh, series as well. It's, I, like, I like to start off in the morning. So once they once that daylight starting to come up, it, the birds are starting to gobble. I like to do a soft tree yell. Once they you know realize that you know, there's a hen there, you know they're gonna they're gonna pitch down. And sometimes I do a fly down cackle, but I really don't throw it into my arsenal unless, you know, I, I hadn't had luck for, you know, a couple of days. And I may throw in a fly down cackle as the last resort thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once they're on the ground, I'll, I'll get I'll get a little more excited with it, a little more raspy. So, with <laughs> funny thing, with, with my injury, my vocal cords, I can go from a, a, a raspy pitch in to like a... a, a a box call type hen call or, or even like a, you know, that, that low tone growl, you know, of an old hen. 
Um, so, I mean, I, I could throw out a couple different calls just by constricting my vocal cords as I call. So, for instance, I'll, I'll, I'll do another series for you. So, once that bird's on the ground, probably gobble to it and then incredible sometimes, <laughs> sometimes those birds that are just stubborn and hung up i will um, i'll throw a goblin at them just because i'll let them know that you know there's a hen there and if you don't want to come to me then there's another bird that's come to me and that means you lost your chance so you either fight or you're gonna lose mm-hmm. and something about turkey they love fighting so i will i'll do a i'll do a hen i'll do a, a hen yelp series i'll cut it off with a gobble here we go. <laughs> oh, dude, you're amazing. You truly are amazing. That is, that's incredible. I love it. So that's kind of a last resort there to, to get that gobbler. Like you said, hey, buddy, um, I'm over here with your lady. You better come see what's up. I mean, what guy What guy's going to let his lady be taken off by another man? Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> and then you smack him upside the head. Uh, yep, with no this. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let me ask you this, Josh, because uh, a lot of people run and gun. You know, that's the type of turkey hunting I do. How mobile are you in your wheelchair? Um, because I honestly don't know. Man, to be honest with you, I am, I am, I'm a run and gun kind of guy. I mean, I, I have, so I have an action track chair. It gets me in about anything that is, possible to get across um it goes about walking speed as your normal person goes walking speed and i mean it, it goes for you know a couple miles and get charged so if i don't if i'm not on a bird he's not working right i'll get on the next bird i'll go you know wherever that bird is yeah um so you are a running gunner I, then yeah well i, I roll and gun whatever <laughs> right on awesome awesome yeah, yeah. I, and you know I, I don't have anything against the guys and i've never hunted turkeys in Kansas or Nebraska or, or any of those states. But to me, when you see someone bow hunting one, it usually means they've just got them patterned and they're just sitting in a blind. Because uh, yeah. it's I mean, it's damn near impossible to come to full draw on a turkey if you're running and gunning and just using the natural vegetation as kind of, you know, you have a blind, you're just sitting up against a tree. When I see that stuff on Outdoor Channel, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But the kind of hunting I want to do is getting out there and just like you, chasing those birds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as as so, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Oh no, I mean, no. Hunting, hunting, and hunting these modern hunting, it, it's become somewhat of a lazy man sport because I mean, you're you're just, I mean, there's no, I mean, back in the days when you know our ancestors chased animals, you know, that's how they had to provide food. There, there's so many, you know, accesses to you know bring that animal to you that you really don't have to do anything but go there and sit and wait on it. You know, so I mean, it's. I mean, I don't, I'm not, like I said, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but personally, I just, for turkeys, I don't like to deer hunt for turkeys. Right. That's I mean, what I call it. Deer hunting turkeys. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, exactly. I chase the excitement of, you know, for, for running down or chasing an animal, you know, to call it into you and get it close enough so you could, you know, get it back to your table. That, that's what excites me. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't mind, you know, I, I love deer hunting, but like I said, I deer hunt five months out of the year. I don't want to deer hunt all spring for a turkey. You know, right. that's, that's 
time of year to get after it and go and chase after something. No, you and I are cut from the same cloth on that for sure. And that's the excitement of of of, of uh, turkey hunting and then for me also elk hunting. Now, a couple other things. When you hear a hen talking, do you strike up a conversation with her? So I love getting into an argument with a hen. Uh-huh. Um, if, if we can go back and forth, we're, we're you know, fighting each other, well, she'll come to me. That is a live decoy for me, and she's doing all the work. So I'll just sit there and I'll hush. You know, I want her to be there doing her thing. And when there's a hen around, there's normally a gobbler somewhere around her. So if I strike up a conversation with her and she gets pissed at me and wants to come over and fight me, then I am all for that because, like I said, normally there's a gobbler somewhere with her, and he's not going to leave his hen to another bird taker. So, I mean, I, I love bringing hens instead of decoys, you know, by doing a – and having a little altercation, a little argument back and forth with it because, you know, that, that boss hen is going to be the one that gets the bird killed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and I also think uh, it's educational. For me, every time that I get into a, a verbal uh, dispute with a hen, I learn a lot about, you know – the noises that she makes and try to figure out why she's making that noise. Is she pissed off? Is she content? Maybe you hear her first and she's just putting or clucking, you know, and just scratching and you know, she's content and then you get her riled up. Uh, but I think that's one of the most educational things that you can do is to, to try to, to understand why she's doing and then what she's doing and then mimic those sounds. So, yeah, I mean, I mean like just me. So honey, I mean, honey for me, it's not about the kill. I mean, it's about learning, you know, the environment, the terrain, it's about learning the animal that you're pursuing. And, you know, to have a, a hen, for instance, or a jake come, you know, within close presence of you, just watching that animal, you know, what they do, how they sound, you know, what means what, like what's going to, you know, what triggers in the gobble, what triggers in the to do an excited yelp or to cut or, you know, to putty. you like knowing those calls and transitioning to your, your arsenal of calls for the next hunt or maybe the next season once you learn it, I mean that is a that's a that's an ace in a hole, you know. That's a that's a totally different game. And that that turns, you know, you listening to what you think an animal should sound like to you know that natural calling of an animal in the in the woods, you know, versus you know what you're hearing on TV or you know the the guys that are competition call. You know, it's a different transaction from you know those settings to a real life um, turkey in the woods. Mm-hmm. So learning that animal what they what they sound like, you know everything that they're doing, you know, learning that, studying that animal is what's going to help you become more successful in the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it goes without saying, or at least I thought it did, that everybody needs to pattern their shotgun and you need to have a, some kind of full choke predator or turkey choke in there. And, and I didn't even know that, that, uh, people were out there hunting without that until my buddy, good friend of mine, I'm not going to throw his name out here to just railroad him, but he told me he's missed three turkeys this season inside of 50 yards. And I'm like, dude, what is going on? He's like, well, I don't know. I just, uh, he's like, do I need to have a different choke in? And I was like, what do you have? He's like, oh, I think I have a modified. I was like, well, there's your problem. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I mean, you got you to have the right choke. Uh, you need to pattern it. Now, are you, uh, uh, where do you put the, the bead? On, on Right on their head or neck? All right, so. For me, I have a I have a CVA Apex with a um it it has a scope on it with a Vanguard scope on it. Mm-hmm. So um, when when I do shoot a turkey, I, I normally I like to keep when I sight it in. I like to have my bead you know on top of his head. So here's the reason why I like to I like to have it on top of his head. So when I shoot him you know at close range, 
I can aim for the neck and still, you know, be solid. But if he's out there, you know, 50 yards or so, I can still aim, you know, as, you know, mid, mid-neck wise and still kill that bird. Right. I know what my pattern's doing. If it's it hitting a little bit higher at, um, you know, at that 20-yard marker, well, if I bring it, you know, bring it down to the middle of his neck, that pattern's still up there. So it's not going to, it's not going to drop. It's just going to hit, you know, it's still going to tear its head up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at, at that distance. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, with today's modern loads, um, I mean, you can kill a turkey at 60 yards if you, if you've patterned your gun, uh, pretty easily. <laughs> I've witnessed it. I've witnessed a lot of long shots over the years. Yeah. Um, I've yet I, to kill one at that distance. I usually they're, they're pretty close and in my lap. But I would I would shoot one at sixty yards if I had the opportunity for sure. I had a friend of mine last year. I um midday uh, we're, we went back we went got something to eat went back to the camp. It's four o'clock in the afternoon or so, and um I'm sitting in the truck and a bird gobbles right at the camp, and um we go and set up, and um I set her up, and I give her my gun and um I step back fifteen yards I put out a strutter decoy. And uh, I back in the woods. And I just start calling to them. And they they come right in my bee. They they walk right past you to the decoy about ten yards. And I didn't have it staked in the ground good enough. The stall was hard, so it fell over and it kind of spooked off a little bit. The bird's ten yards, you know. Yeah. And um, they started going off. They got about fifty yards, and um, I was like, shoot the bird, shoot the bird. And um, she she didn't have the hammer cocked back on my gun. So once she finally got that done, you know, the bird was seventy two yards. And she drilled it. <laughs> I mean, completely drilled the bird. And uh, I looked back. I was like, "Man, that's a, that's a heck of a shot." <laughs> Seven, yeah. Her first, Hell her yeah. First touch, you know, seventy-two yards. That's a heck of a shot. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, as we wrap things up here, Josh, what's your favorite recipe? Once you've got your tag on that big gobbler, uh, how are you preparing him for friends and family? There's two ways to cook a turkey, and this is the only way that I, I have enjoyed turkey. There's turkey nuggets right back at the camp once you kill that bird fresh, and going home and making turkey fajitas. That's probably the, the two favorite ways that I like to, you know, uh, eat a turkey, you know, wild turkey for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. Well, good stuff, my friend. If you want to, uh, if you want to plug your social media stuff so folks can follow along in your journey. Yeah, so um, Joshua Carney on any social media site, um, um, search Son of the South, S-O-N of the South, or you can go to my website, www.sonofthesouthtv.com, and uh, I'll pop up, and I'll probably be doing some calls somewhere. <laughs> well, Josh, always great talking turkeys with you, man. You know, I'm a big fan of yours, and you truly are an inspiration for um, hunters and, and the outdoor industry alike. I definitely appreciate that. All right, brother. You take care. Yes, sir. Take it easy. All right. There he goes. Our good friend, Josh Carney, a.k.a. the son of the South. I tell you what, to be paralyzed at the age of 13 and have the positive outlook on life that Josh does, it's truly awe-inspiring, to be honest with you. Uh, That segment of the show brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. If you smash that 11-and-a-half-inch beard this spring, hey, you know where to take it to get the full body mount. Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Josh and Becky Gunther have been doing all of my taxidermy work for six or seven years now, maybe longer. God, it's been a long time. 
They do amazing work. They answer the phone when I call, and they offer fast turnaround time. They've got shops in San Antonio and Marion, Texas, and you can find them at gr-mounts.com. We'll be right back with FLW angler John Hunter, where we'll discuss ripping those big spawning females off their beds and what's the latest on the Go Wild app. We discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoors show. If I could move, I'd get my gun and put her in the ground. Don't take your love time. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Howdy, this is Robert Earl Keen, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Up this morning, before the sun, fixed me some coffee and a honey bun. Jumped in the picker, gave her the gas, I'm going out to catch a five-pound bass. Ah, yes, the five-pound bass. Robert Earl Keen bringing us back. On the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for dropping by. I appreciate each and every one of you. As spring is in the air, and that means the largemouth are spawning. And we're going to talk a little bass fishing here with FLW Pro John Hunter in just a second. Uh, also, get the latest and greatest from the Go Wild app, which if you're an outdoor enthusiast who uses any kind of social media whatsoever, uh, you're going to want to know about the Go Wild app. So we'll get into all of that here momentarily. But first, this segment is brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. And you know what else All Seasons does? They make a fish feeder. It's called the damn fish feeder. You put it right there on the damn dam and you feed your damn fish. So if your farm pond or stock tank is loaded up with largemouth bass that you've stocked and they are spawning right now, hey, those fish are hungry. And you need to feed them with the damn fish feeder. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Well, let's go ahead and talk some bass fishing here. Joining us now, it's my pleasure to welcome FLW Tour Angler and Go Wild app co-founder, John Hunter. Thanks for dropping in. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, so, first of all, how is the FLW Tour treating you this season? Man, it's, uh, it started off, it's been a pretty pretty good year. You know, usually... Uh, we we always start in Florida generally, and uh, Florida can be a little bit of a scary place uh, for a fisherman because they're they're of places that's the place where uh, chance plays the biggest factor. Uh-huh. Um, so you know I just go into I tried to go into Florida this year. We had two tournaments in Florida, and I tried to go into them with the mindset of let's just get out of there alive, survive it. You don't want to bomb, 
because then you get really far down to the point. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I said, let's not let's not bomb. Let's go down there. Let's put together, you know, just some decent finishes. And man, I, I really couldn't be any happier with how with how Florida went. Uh, I had a fifty, I think a fiftieth place Okeechobee and got a made made a check, made the check cut, and then at uh, the next one I finished third uh, at the Harris Chain, and. Uh, Awesome. And that was uh, I nearly won it, had a chance to win it. Um, so I was tickled pink uh, leaving Florida with with those two finishes. Yeah, heck yeah, third place. That's awesome. Um, well, that's great. And you know, the past two years though, you fished the Elite Series. What would you say is the biggest difference between the Elites and the FLW? Man, uh, you know, you're still competing at the highest level in the sport in, in both circuits. Uh, you know, it's just it's just different. It's like um, the way I try to explain it is like the the NFL used to have two divisions, and the the past you know NBA used to be ABA NBA. Um, it's a lot like that. Um, there you still got there's still the best fishermen in the world in both series. Um, the FLW is a little bit larger field size. They do like one or two less tournaments a year, um, but uh, still high stakes, big money being you know, you're fishing for a lot of money still. So, uh, yeah. uh, if I had to name one difference, it would be that FLW, uh, is a little more spread, like is a little bit more laid back as far as a uh, time sequence or a tournament week. Uh-huh. We get an off day in there after our practice rounds, which is nice. Um, but you know, other than that, you're still, you're still competing against very good anglers at a high level. So. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, you're kind of, uh, you're some kind of an educated redneck earning a degree in uh, business administration, graduating cum laude, which is impressive. But it appears that was kind of uh, secondary to what you really did in college, which was join the the bass fishing team. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And and to be honest... Congrats on the degree. uh, I mean, that's great, but uh, as far as... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the degrees, I mean, that's very important. Uh, A lot of of kids these days want to just... They had this dream of becoming a professional fisherman, and they just want to, you know, when they're done with high school, they just want to jump into the amateur series. And I, I just, I highly, highly, highly recommend people don't do that. And, uh, you know, I think the college route is the way to go um, because now college fishing has, has grown and this is, it's exploding, man. It's so big. They're offering scholarships. Schools have their own boats. You don't have to have a boat anymore just a big deal it's a good way to get education network meet people within the industry that way you're kind of ready uh to make that leap with a little bit a little bit better background a little bit more experience when you do graduate yeah. um, to be honest, that's what helped me i did the college fishing uh, i didn't even know i was going to do college fishing baseball didn't work out like i thought i'd always you know fish tournaments in high school so i just met the guys joined the team and man it was the best thing that ever happened to me by far so well, I mean, so that that's your story, and yours is just one of many, you know, from the the new generation of anglers. Hell, Jordan Lee, he just won back-to-back Bassmaster Classics, and uh, yep. and he had a, a great collegiate career. I think he was in the SEC, maybe at Auburn or something, but uh, he uh, yep. he kind of came through yep. the same way you did. Absolutely. Uh, we fished against each other all through college, Jordan and I. We were, he graduated one year before me, so... Uh, yeah, we we frequently competed, and in college fishing, it, there's no divisions. It's all the ranking systems is all, it's all one. So it's kind of crazy how it works. But uh, 
So, like, I went to a small NAI school, but we were ranked on the same level of an Auburn or, as Auburn or Alabama or somebody like that. Right. But Jordan was – Jordan was a – he was he's amazing now, and he was amazing then in college. So, yeah. nothing's changed. Well, you know, before we discuss your business venture, going back to that, that degree that you got in business administration, I do want to talk a little fishing. So, what is your, your go-to bait for enticing that, that big girl to strike – while she's on her bed, because here in North Texas, it's obviously warmer than it is where you're at in Kentucky. But uh, I saw bucks and, and large females on beds all over the place last week. Uh, so what is that bait that you're going to pull out just to piss her off enough to, to eat something? So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. Um, if you can if you can flip something in there with some heavy line and, and it's ready to bite. You know, just go ahead and flip a crawl, you know, something that's got a bigger hook and, you know, that you're just going to, your landing ratio is a lot better, especially if it's around heavy cover. Just beef up and go with heavier line, heavier hook, uh, you know, not play around. But if it's if it's acting really finicky, um, a trick you can use is, uh, you know, it's not really a trick, but just go to some lighter line, um, you know, like eight-pound test, uh, spin rod, eight-pound fluorocarbon, you know, that a lot of times these, these fish are in high-pressured high fisheries, and they, they've gotten fished for a lot of times every spring throughout their lives. So they've, they've become conditioned to, uh, to seeing baits. And, and when the water is very clear, you know, if you can see that fish, chances are it, it can see you. Um, so, you know, they, you really got really to gotta be careful and, uh, and try and use that light line and, and pull them into pull them into biting but another thing i will say you know it, a good bait for that light line tactic would be like a, a wacky worm with a nail weight in it or even without a nail mm-hmm. uh, you basically just take a straight stick worm and then take a small little uh round bin like an octopus hook or just a wacky worm drop shot hook and you put it through the middle of the bait so that it falls real slow uh parallel to the to the bottom um but if that doesn't work, one thing that I like to do is I like to take a big, like, black and blue jig and uh, and flip it in the bed. And, and a lot of times they won't they won't bite that. And, I'm, and be sure to try not snag them. That's super unethical. It's not the right thing to do. But if you can rip that jig through that bed really fast a few times, um, a lot of times, like, it, it – you can see it almost changing colors and, and it'll just mood will change. You can watch it change while it's on the nest and you can then pick that wacky worm back up and flip it in there. I'll usually bite it first, first flip back in there. But I mean, that's, that's last ditch effort. Sometimes you'll spook them off the bed and they won't come back after like hopping that thing through there real violently. But sometimes, you know, just that bigger bulkier bait like that, it just, it'll really tick them off. So sure. It's a good tactic. And how long will you mess with the same fish? For example, my dad, uh, when he dies, this is the one thing that I, I want. Uh, it's in his office right now. He's got a eight-something he caught on Lake Fork in the, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s. And he fished for that bass all day, all damn day. And it never, finally, finally, he got it mad enough to, to eat something. And, and back then, people didn't do replicas. So it is actually the bass that he caught. Uh, but things have changed, you know, since that time. But but uh, the one thing that I'm like, yeah. oh, that, that someday that's going to be mine. Uh, and he's proud of that fish, and, and he worked, you know, like I said, it took him a whole day to catch it. So uh, it's probably different in a tournament. You're not going to fiddle around with the same bass for hours and hours and hours. But about how long will you 
dedicate to trying to catch one fish? So, you know, a general rule of thumb, you know, it's it's really hard to say. People have their rule of thumbs, but I'm not even going to say there's a rule of thumb. The best way to decide is is to judge the amount of time you need to spend by based on the fish's uh based on how they're moving around and just their their overall uh their mood i mean uh, you can almost tell like if you flip in there and it swims off and it's it's not coming back and it comes back after about five or ten seconds and it, it all depends on how much interest it's showing in the bait and how much it's reacting to it and just the mood that it that it's and how it's acting uh that's the that's the biggest gauge. I mean, if it, if I see it right there, if it'll nose down on the bait every now and then, even if it leaves and comes back and shows some interest, I'm probably going to spend some time on it. Um, and you know, the size matters too. If it's a six or seven pounder, you're, yeah, I might spend an hour on it if it is showing some interest, even mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, cause that's the kind of fish that can totally change your day in any, in any tournament setting across the country at any lake. But you know, if it's just a two or three pounder, probably quite a few of those swimming around up on up on their up on the nest you sure. might want to just you know, spend 15 20 minutes and unless it's just acting like it's going to go any second but uh, a, a good rule of thumb is you know pull up there check the mood of it if it's acting like it give it 20 30 minutes if it's not a giant um if not you probably need to move on, right on. It, it's a tough one man that, that I've, I've asked people i talked to some of my other buddies about it um because i'm not a i'm not a, a I'm a decent sight fisherman. I wouldn't call myself a sight fishing expert, but I've obviously done it quite a bit. Uh, but that's, that, that is a tough, that's a tough question to answer. The more you do it, the better you'll get at, at judging a fish's overall mood. And, uh, you'll be able to kind of tell how long you need to be there. Right. Well, I must suck at judging their mood. I can catch the males all day. You know, they, they get, they're not hard. They get mad and they'll eat anything, but the females a little bit trickier for me. Yeah, they are. They are. I guess the bass haven't spawned up in your neck of the woods. No, no. The water I was at, I was out this morning. The water was fifty-one degrees. Wow. <laughs> okay, so y'all still have a little ways to go. Here, ours are either finishing up or they're done. Um, you know, you're, you're still probably you still probably got a couple weeks left. If, um, yep. You'll find some still on their beds, the late spawners. But as far as post spawn goes, because that's what we're fast approaching here in the south. Um, Give us two or three baits and in a water depth where you expect to find those fish as they move back off the beds. So pretty much, you know, within a month of the, the post-spawn, a lot, a lot of fish haven't, they haven't moved out. Some of them have moved out to brush and offshore ledges, humps, breaks, uh, points, whatever you may call it, whatever offshore structure you have in your lake. Um, some of them will move out there, but a lot of them are still shallow, man. They're they're done spawning, but they're still a lot of them are garden fry. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe eating on maybe the bluegill are spawning. A huge thing, right? The, a lot of fish will stay shallow, especially if the water's up a little. A lot of them will stay shallow because there's a bait fish spawn, the shad spawn right after the bass do. When the water's in that upper 60s, lower 70s, the shad spawn for about a about a month there. Uh, there'll be a couple of big shad spawns, and the bass just Man, they love it, and uh, you can really get right on top water first thing in the morning. The shad spawn will usually last 30 minutes to a couple hours, depending on daylight. They're like zombies, man. Like once the sunlight hits, it's, it, it's high sun, it's pretty much over. But if you can keep some, if 
first thing in the morning, low light, and go up there with a spinnerbait or a topwater or, or a chatterbait and, uh, and get right, you know, on docks. You want to look for docks, grass lines, seawalls. Those are the best shad spawn areas. Okay. So, those, yeah, those are your baits. Spinnerbait, chatterbait, topwater, spook, something like that. Uh, early in the morning, if you get cloud coverage, sometimes you can throw it a, a long time into the day. Um, but that's a really, really good uh, post-spawn tactic. And then also look out for the bluegill spawn running pockets with like a with like a pop bar or a prop bait. Okay, good insight there. Uh, let's let's change gears and talk go wild. I had your partner Brad Luttrell on. Uh, I think it was back in January when Go Wild first launched. Then it was only available on iPhones. Now it's open up for all the Android folks like myself. I understand you guys have experienced some. Well, pretty much monumental growth as far as people that are using the app. I mean, since January, it's been enormous. Uh, Android helped, obviously, because contrary to popular belief, I mean, I, I didn't know it, but Android's, um, you know, 70% of the people um, have Android. <laughs> so uh, that that obviously was, was huge for us. We only had iPhone there for a few months, you know, four or five months, and everyone was, was itching and chomping at the bit, and then Android came out, and... Uh, We've really seen a lot of growth and a lot of great feedback, which has been really exciting. Everybody's loving the app, and uh, we're working hard every day to, to continue to make it better and make the user experience uh, more enjoyable for everyone. Well, yeah, so what's the point? Why? Uh, I mean, we have Instagram, we have Facebook. Why Why do we need something like Go Wild? So one of the main deals is when you when I if I were to open up my Facebook right now, and go through it. I guarantee you, and I have a lot of fishing friends on Facebook, but I guarantee you 75% of it would either be politics, gun control, um, some sort of bullying, uh, a school shoot. You know, it'd be something negative, something that I really just, that's going to ruin my day or I don't really want to hear about. I mean, it, it's going to be one of those things. There's a 75% chance. If I open Go Wild, there's a about a 0% chance I'm going to see any of that. I mean, it's true. I, you, when I go to Go Wild, I'm going to see something that I am genuinely interested in, whether it be hiking, whether it be fishing, hunting, uh, camping. Uh, if I'm looking for, you know... I, it offers everything to do with the outdoors, and I love everything to do with the outdoors. So, you know, I open that app, there's a 100% chance I'm going to be satisfied with content that I want to, that I want to, I want to read and I want to see. Um, it just, uh, it, you know, it, it eliminates all the stuff that you don't want in your life on, when, in social media aspects. Well, and on top of all that negativity, I mean, people make it extremely personal. Um, for somebody in the public eye, say like yourself or, or me, when you start getting uh, a decent number of people that follow your page for one reason or another, there's always going to be, especially more so with, with hunting, there's anti-hunters. I don't think there's a huge conglomerate of, of anti-fishing folks, although there probably will be at some point. Uh, yeah, the way the way things are going, yeah, there will be. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's nothing for these people to send me private messages or post on, uh, something, a topic that I've, you know, put out there. Hey, hope your kid gets hit by an 18 wheeler or you're going to, you're going to die a thousand deaths. God's going to punish you for eternity. I'm like, read the Bible. 
Jesus yeah. fed the 5,000 with fish, you moron. Uh, Jesus wasn't a vegan, so let's not pretend like he was. Uh, but it's that kind of stuff. And then two weeks ago, I actually had to call the FBI for the first time. And this is, a, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of death threats and negative comments directed towards me. This is the first one I've ever actually called the authorities because it, it talked about some Mexican cartel. I looked up the cartel. It was a real cartel. And uh, when they're talking about your family in a cartel in the same sentence, uh, you know, I had a buddy's wife kind of translate it, and she's like, you should definitely call someone. And I was like, God, this is just mind-blowing. And it was over a hunting post just because they were an anti-hunter. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff you get on, on uh, everyday social media <laughs> platforms, which you won't find on Go Wild, which is why it's so appealing to me. Now, here's the question, though. Because obviously, I'm encouraging people to go check out this app. Um, how do we get enough people? I mean, interested uh, to make it worth their while? What are you guys doing to push yeah. the envelope as far as is driving membership? Absolutely, man. Uh, Besides you know, talking one, to me, yeah. Uh, you know, we're constantly, like I said earlier, constantly adding features and uh, and trying to make the app a better place and. Uh, you know, offer more to our to our members who sign up and our users. Uh, I really so that we're working on this this one feature that's really it's really going to change the game. Um, and I, I don't even I don't even think I'm in the right place to even leak about it. But so I'm going to talk about the features we do have, um, <laughs> which are still which are still awesome. Um, but I am really excited about something that's coming in the here in the next couple of two or three months. But right now, you know, a couple of great features on the app is a way to keep up with your with your trophies and log in your catches and uh, and kills and and all that. You know, I always find myself when when someone asks me to see my deer from 2015 or 2016, I struggle because I I go through iPhones like it's my job. I drop one in the lake like twice a year. So. Right. right. And, and that was you know. I'm sometimes stubborn about the cloud and, and frequently backing it up. So uh, I, I lose a lot of photos. But with Go Wild, it gives me a place to organize and keep track of, of everything I've done in the outdoors, every bass I've caught, every every deer that I've killed, every, you know, every – any time you do anything, we, we want you to come to Go Wild. We want you to share it. We want you to log it. We want you to talk about it. Um, another awesome thing is – this is what I tell people a lot is it's hard to really get appreciation for what you do in the outdoors. Like, but go wild allows you to do that. You can, you can log. If you just go hiking for 45 minutes, you can go log it in the app. So at the end of the day or at the end of the month, end of the year, you can look back and be like, man, I have, I have done a lot in the outdoors this year. I've, I've done a lot for conservation. I've done a, I've done a lot to, to help my community it's just a, it's a great way to be able to track what you've been doing and keep up with it and, and also for others to see it and for you to, to interact and, and learn from other people yeah i do like that feature um as far as logging everything one other thing that that i've really seen go wild evolve into is a is a place for people to learn and uh and find out new things around them so Oh, a, com a common a common thing I see is 
someone teaching someone else about turkey hunting or about deer hunting, which is a really neat place. It's almost a place where people can come and learn about new things that they're not as familiar about as well. We we really really preach an open community for everyone to to come in and and share their 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 maybe not their deepest secrets, but their secrets and tips for for people who are who are looking to learn to do new things in the outdoors. So that's another really cool feature that I've that I've seen people leveraging the app for. Very cool. Very cool. And now, uh, as we wrap up, though, I did want you to, to be able to mention that y'all started a podcast as well. Yeah, we did. Uh, it's called Restless Native. Uh, we've had really good, really great reviews. And, and that, uh, like, that describes me to a T, so that's a, that's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> you and I both, man. I can't ever sit still. I gotta, uh, I've always said an idle mind is it's a bad deal, so uh, I try and stay moving. Yeah. And so, where can people find that? Yeah, it's on the it's on the the Apple the podcast store or uh, whatever. What is Android called? The uh, Google. Yeah, Google Play. Google Play Store. It's Restless Native. Um, that is the name of it. And uh, we have we now have four episodes out. We just cranked it up a couple weeks ago, and uh, hearing a lot of great things about it, a lot of good feedback. So we're looking forward to to putting more out each and each and every week. Awesome. Well, hey, John, I certainly wish you continued success on the FLW Tour, and uh, we want folks to check out Go Wild. Find them, follow along on Instagram, Facebook, but obviously go download the app as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Best of luck to everyone this, this year. The FLW Tour and Go Wild apps. John Hunter dropping by today. We appreciate uh, his contribution. always love talking Spawning largemouth, to be honest with you. Uh, that segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by Scent Blaster. If you use any kind of liquid-based attractant, then you need to have a Scent Blaster in your arsenal. It's that simple. Whether you're hunting deer, hogs, or varmints, whatever you use to attract those animals, fill your Scent Blaster up, Get more scent out and get it out longer with Scent Blaster, and you can order yours today at ScentBlaster.net. Uh, unfortunately, just looking at the clock here, we've got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to each of our guests today, of course, Angler John Hunter, uh, also Texas Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries Director Robin Rikers, and our good friend Josh Carney, the son of the South. Enjoyed talking turkeys with him. We'll do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Yeah, the time the wind blows, but I can feel your touch. Gives you through another day. With a long stretch of highway.